0: Well, it's great to be back um, in worship and having a chance to preach. I was gone the past four weeks, so if you've been new and haven't seen me, um, I'd love to get a chance to get to know you. I was out four weeks ago um, in class in San Antonio for a week. I was back for a few days, and then we went to Florida to take Mary Rachel to see her doctor, and then we followed that up with a trip to Disney. And so the first thing I want to say is thank you for loving our family. Um, Anyone who doesn't recognize the importance of the local church, I'd love to have coffee and talk to you. It is overwhelming every year when we take Mary Rachel to see her specialist, um, the amount of people that pray for us, reach out, that just really care. And we had a good visit, um, which is not often the case, and so we're really thankful. And we had a great time at Disney. For those of you who don't know me, and a lot of ask, hey, when Tripp said, Matt's excited to go to Disney, he was joking. (laughs) I have fought tooth and nail for the past decade with my wife about Disney. I adamantly said, we will never go to Disney and waste all of that money and go through the headaches of the crowd and the lines. And finally, um, we compromised and went to Disney. (laughs) But in all seriousness, um, I had to eat an unbelievable amount of humble pie. We had a great time. And I don't just say that because it was enjoyable for me to watch my three daughters and my wife experienced Disney and the Wonder and the Magic for the first time. I had a great time. Um, I enjoyed it. I had been twice before, once when I was young, under the age of 10, I don't really remember, and then once in high school when my little sister was eight. Um, But that trip, I feel like it was just a blur of um, bad memories. My mom had gotten remarried. I did not like my stepdad. It was not a well-planned trip, and so I I hated it. Not to mention, as a 16-year-old boy and as probably an eight-year-old boy, I didn't care about Cinderella or Mickey or Beauty and the Beast. Um, And so, a part of what I think transformed this trip for me is not just having daughters and a wife who love Disney, but the fact that as I was there, I wasn't simply amazed and overwhelmed by the creativity and ingenuity of what they do and how they create an atmosphere that more than anything else seeks to bring happiness to people. But I understood the stories. Um, Having watched all of the Disney movies with my girls um, almost every week for the past decade, when we would see the Beauty and the Beast play, when we would go to Toy Story Land, um, I knew what was going on. Understanding the story um, dramatically impacted how I experienced the entire event and I loved it. I mean, I even got emotional and wept during some of the plays and the, the stories that we got to experience. And I bring that up not just simply to say Um, I had a good time at Disney, and so all the dads that are holding out, maybe you should consider going. And side note, if you need help, um, Trip Smith, one of our other pastors here, he loves Disney. And that is an understatement. He loves Disney more than I love Clemson football, country music, trucks, and working out. If that puts it in any comparison. And he was unbelievably loving with his commitment that I was going to have a good time. My goal going in was, I just don't want to ruin it for my girls. And so even in our magic bands that they ordered, they got me the one that was grumpy. And they're like, we know, Dad. Dad's not going to have fun. But understanding the story um, carried significant weight in how I experienced the entire event. And I bring that up because that's true today. Um, You may have grown up in church or you may be new to Christianity But if you aren't familiar with the story that Sarah just read, if you aren't familiar with the language of the Lamb of God who takes away our sins, then you actually don't understand Christianity. And I'm not saying that just for the shock and awe factor. I know that's a loud statement. But that's actually a biblical truth. And I say that because if you look, well, throughout the New Testament, but especially in John 1, where John is explaining um, that the force that has been governing and operating in the world, the the force that brings life and light to all mankind, is the one true living God, who in the fullness of time, he took on flesh. And the way he explains that early on in John 1, he says, there was a messenger sent from God to prepare the way so that people would know this is the long-awaited Messiah, and as soon as John the Baptist sees Jesus, in John chapter 1, verse 29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He could have chosen so many other um, phrases or terms. Behold the long-awaited Messiah. Behold the Creator, Judge, Redeemer, Sustainer, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But instead, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. If you go to the end of God's word in revelation, a book given to us about the new heavens and new earth and the end times and all the judgment that's coming 27 times in that one book, God is referred to as the lamb who is seated on the throne. What's the point? If you don't understand the language and the context of the lamb, namely the story we just read, then you won't fully know who God is. And who Jesus is as the lamb who takes away our sins. Now, if this is your very first week with us, we're five weeks into looking at the story of Exodus through the lens of God redeeming his people through the life of Moses. And so today we're coming to the last and final plague that God is sending on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They had enslaved God's people. Over and over again, Pharaoh had hardened his heart when God would send plague after plague, revealing that there is only one God that rules and reigns, and that is not any of the false gods of Egypt, nor Pharaoh himself. And every plague had made it clear that Pharaoh needed to repent and let God's people go. But this final one um, turns it up in so many ways. And in this final plague, God says that he is going to send the destroyer, the angel of death, throughout the land of Egypt to kill the firstborn in every household. Now, pause. I know, even if you've been in church, hearing that story, if you're awake and paying attention, you're like, wow, this seems a little extreme. At a minimum, it's confusing. How in any way could this be acceptable and okay? And, and this is where we need to remember something that we always forget, something that Paul points out in Romans 9 verse 20, in many ways, one of the most important verses in the Bible, who are you to question God? Does the potter have the right, the clay have the right to say to the potter, you shouldn't have made me this way or you shouldn't do this thing? See, God is God and we are not. And as God, he is the holy creator and sustainer of all things. And as the holy creator, we as his image bearers, as his created objects of affection, we owe him obedience. We owe him love with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Gratitude, which Paul says in Romans 1, is kind of the root of all of our sin, is a lack of gratitude. But the way that plays out in our life is that when you love and obey God, you will actually treat your neighbor as you want to be treated. Which is the only way we experience happiness and flourishing individually, in our lives, in our community, in our nations. And so we all know all the time that God's law and the way that we are created and designed to live is good, but none of us live that way, even as we just finished confessing together corporately. And as a result, each of us is born with hearts turned away from the Lord, inheriting the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. We are all born not with an inclination to obey God and love our neighbor, but rather we are born with hearts that are infected with pride and self-centeredness. The Apostle Paul explains it this way in Ephesians 2. He tells the church, Don't ever forget that before you were made alive in Christ by grace alone, you were dead. And in your trespasses and sins when you were dead, you were by nature an object of his wrath. Which means what you deserve from God if he was just and he was fair, and he gave you what you actually deserved, no matter how good you think you are, You would be punished forever and would have no hope. He says, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, I'm not just saying this to you because you are exceedingly wicked, but this is true of every single person, every son of Adam and daughter of Eve. And this is something that if you've never wrestled with, you need to deeply, deeply consider. If this is your first time ever coming to a Christian church in your life, don't miss this truth that we are born in sin deserving judgment from God. In Romans 6, the apostle Paul says, the wages of sin is death. The reason everyone dies physically, but also knows that we shouldn't die, is because we were created in God's image to live forever in a world where disease, death, and decay do not exist. But because of sin... All of us die physically. And even though we know that, even though we know that's the one guarantee for all of us in this room today is that we will die when we experience death up close and personal, which I know that we don't much as a society, but when we do, our hearts cry out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I had coffee with a friend last week who was sharing with me um, experiencing God's love and affection in a new, deeper way as her father passed away. And so she was sharing about this experience, but one of the things she said was, my father had hospice care. He had been sick for a long time. We knew he was going to die at any moment. And so I was there with my mom. We knew any moment he would die. But when the nurse walked downstairs and we took a break from sitting with him and said, he's gone, it still hit me. I still didn't expect it. Deep in my heart, something cried out, this is not the way things are supposed to be. Paul Tripp says it this way in his book Forever. Forever. Somewhere today, someone will cry herself to sleep because someone she has loved, someone she loved has died. Death is never easy. It's impossible to plan for it. It's hard to predict how you will react when death enters your door. Death never seems right. How is it that something this universal can seem so unnatural? And he's right. Now, I know as a society, we do our best to avoid the reality of death. And the author of Ecclesiastes says, if you do this, then you're guaranteeing in many ways that you're going to live like a fool. That you're not going to live a wise life that knows how to orient and order what matters versus what doesn't matter. The author of Ecclesiastes says, it's better for us to go to the house of mourning than a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man, and the living should take this to heart. For the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools are in the house of Of laughter I've had people say to me in their 40s I've never been to a funeral before I've never seen a dead body now listen there's of course parenting wisdom around how soon you take children to visitations or funerals and let them see someone who's passed away but this says death is the destiny of every man and there is something wise for our hearts to be gained by going to funerals to the house of mourning when I was in San Antonio three weeks ago for class, it was the first week of Lent, Ash Wednesday was that Wednesday we were in class. And so our professor let us out for a longer lunch break and said, if you'd like, there's an Ash Wednesday service happening at the church where we were meeting. And I'd never been to an Ash Wednesday service. And you don't need to come tell me afterwards, that's Catholic, okay? Just cause the Catholic church does Ash Wednesday doesn't mean they own the rights to Ash Wednesday. I didn't grow up in a church that had um, any type of historical rhythms and liturgies at all, and so I went, and it was unbelievably powerful. If you've never been to an Ash Wednesday service, the whole focus and emphasis is to remind us what the author says earlier in Ecclesiastes: "All go to one place; all are from the dust, and to dust they will turn again." In his Ash um, Lent devotional. Our mentor treat speaker Chuck DeGroat said this Ash Wednesday is the most formative day of my year. And that entire service was so good for my heart to just remind me, you are going to die. And you don't know when that day is going to come. Listen, often when our elders gather together for people in the church who have been told by doctors, for example, you'll never have kids, or this is incurable. We'll do what the book of James says, and we'll gather together, anoint them with oil, and we'll pray. And we'll pray that God will give us a miracle, because he can. And we'll pray, Lord, if it is your will, will you do the unthinkable and supernaturally act? And a phrase that we'll often use is we'll say, Lord, we would love to have an appetizer of the new heavens and the new earth. An appetizer of what's going to come as you promise us in your word that you're going to wipe away every tear from every eye, disease and death and decay will be no more. Please, if it's your will, give us an appetizer. And we know it's only an appetizer because even in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, physically on this earth, he still died again. What's happening in this last and final plague is something we never ask God to do. Give us an appetizer of the final judgment. Give us an appetizer, a foretaste of what's going to come when we die and stand before your judgment seat. The author of Hebrews says, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. I'm not saying this to try to freak you out or scare you, but rather to wake all of us up. We need to remember these truths that we are born in sin, deserving wrath, and one day each and every one of us will die and have to stand before the judgment seat of God. Now the other weird, maybe confusing thing is, well then why only the firstborn? Why doesn't he say the angel of death, the destroyer is gonna come and he's gonna wipe out everybody who sinned? It's confusing to us because of how individualistic our society is. It makes no sense to think that the firstborn of the family could actually pay the punishment for the rest of the family. But it wasn't confusing in this society. In this historical and cultural context, the firstborn um, was viewed in a way that we can't really comprehend. Um, In some ways, maybe in, in in a little way to think about it, is in a culture where there was no social security or retirement system, and there was no bankruptcy court, All the hopes and dreams of the future and the responsibility for family debts fell on the shoulders of the firstborn son. And so when you take that out kind of globally and thinking about God as the judge and what we all owe him, it's not confusing or surprising if he says the firstborns are going to pay the debt for the sins of their family. This is why if you go back to Genesis 22 and God had promised to Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to give you a son, a son Isaac, and through him, all the families of the earth are going to be redeemed. The Redeemer's going to come through this son of the promise. But then once Isaac was born, God goes to Abraham and says, take Isaac, your son, whom you love, side note, first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible, and go sacrifice him. And it says in the very next verse, of course, with a heavy heart, broken, Abraham, guide up and obeyed. Now, commentators point out, if God would have said, Hey, Abraham, take your wife, Sarah, who you love, and go sacrifice her, he would have said, Are you crazy? What kind of a monster would ask that? But because they understood the significance of the firstborn son, as it were, Abraham was saying, As much as this is a nightmare to think of sacrificing my firstborn son, God has a right to call in this debt. Now, one of the things that makes this plague so much weightier than every other plague, isn't just the fact that the angel of death is coming, unlike um, a plague on crops or animals or darkness. It's the fact that in every other plague, God made a strong distinction between the Egyptians who were oppressing his people and his people who observed his favor. If you go back and read about it, you'll know that he would say, hey, I'm going to send you know, all these locusts, and I'm going to send gnats, and I'm going to send a plague on their crops, but you stand over here and observe, and they're going to notice the difference between my people and them. But in this one, he doesn't say that. In this one, he says to his people, If you do not sacrifice a lamb and spread its blood on your doorpost, when the destroyer passes through, your firstborn will die as well. In other words, he is making the same point that Paul makes to the church in Rome and that we need to be reminded of all the time in Romans chapter 3. Paul says, what then are we Jews, for our context, are we who are in the church any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Think about How easy the knee jerk reaction would have been for the Israelites to hear from Moses and Aaron God's going to send to the destroyer and he's going to kill the firstborn of the Egyptians and us if we do not sacrifice a lamb. How easy it would have been for them to say, Wait, 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 wait. We're not nearly as bad as the Egyptians. They oppress us, they enslaved us, they work us to death, they take our possessions and our property, they have murdered our children. This isn't fair. God, how can you put me in the same camp as them? But one of the things that we need to remember is that justification by comparison never works. And there is always an extreme danger for us and the church as recipients of grace to become proud and arrogant towards those that we think we are better than. I love quotes. Y'all aren't surprised by that, both with all the quotes I put in the bulletins and I do sticky notes with quotes all the time. I'm sorry we don't have them all up this morning. We had technical difficulties earlier. But the only quote that I have on the pulpit up here and that I have taped right in my office in front of my desk at eye level is from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And he says, Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. Paul goes on in Romans 3 after explaining, hey, we we need to not ever forget that none of us are righteous. None of us is deserving of God's blessing and favor. He says, we know that whatever the law of God says, it speaks to those that are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped so that the whole world will be held accountable before God. One of the greatest graces and kindnesses God has ever given me is when I was being taught and introduced to the gospel of grace, the good news of the gospel for the first time, the guy who was discipling me, and we were studying Romans 3, said, hey, look, pause, Matt, here's something you need to understand. First and foremost, you are not a good guy deserving of God's blessings. If God gave you what you deserved, if his only overarching character trait was fairness and justice, you would have no hope. He would punish you for all eternity for your sin, And you would not be able to stand up in court at the judgment seat of God and say, objection, objection, in any way. And and until you can own that as best you're able, boy, the good news of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the Lamb of God who took away our sin, it's not going to carry any weight. And it's not going to transform your life at all. So this is weighty. This is gruesome. One of the main truths God was communicating through this last and final plague was that all have sinned and that the wages of sin is death. So on that night, exactly as he promised, the destroyer passed through the land. And as Sarah just finished reading in verse 30, it says, there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And every house in the land, there was either a firstborn who was dead Or a lamb who had been sacrificed. There was blood throughout the land. And notice one of the things that God does. He just says, hey, this isn't just the last and greatest of all the plagues. But this alone is the one that you are to never ever forget. He doesn't say, I want you to remember all of my mercies and kindnesses and power. So when you go to the promised land, anytime you see gnats and you're swatting them out of your face, pray this prayer about how I sent a plague of gnats on the Egyptians and not on you. Every time you drink clean water, remember how I turned the river of Nile to blood and be grateful. Instead, he said this, the one that you may want to dismiss and move on from and not think about the most because it convicts you of how sinful you are and that the blood of a lamb had to be sacrificed for you to be redeemed. This is the one that you are to remember. It is to actually change your calendar. Your entire identity and, and life is meant to be ordered around this final plague of you being redeemed by the blood of a lamb. And why did God do this? Well, in his wisdom, he wanted us to never forget that we need a redeemer, that we cannot save ourselves from our slavery to sin and death. In Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God album, which is a Christmas album, and Eric sang one of the songs from it, that I absolutely love, he, he, he kind of unpacks, he calls it the true tall tale of the coming of Christ. And it's an unbelievable kind of explanation of the Old Testament um, story of redemption. But he actually has this song, you know, called Passover Us, which is about the Passover. And then the next one in the album, chronologically, he has one called Deliver Us. And they're singing about, hey, our ankles bear no calluses from chains, yet, Lord, we're bound. Imprisoned here we dwell in our own land. Deliver us. We need to be delivered from something so much greater than slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. We need to be delivered from sin and death. And our only hope is for someone else to redeem us. We cannot redeem ourselves. God said, don't ever, ever forget that. But then secondly, he said to remember that you were redeemed by the blood of a lamb. You are a redeemed people saved through a substitutionary sacrifice in your place. Now, this may be in some ways the most confusing part of the story because you're naturally thinking this isn't fair or just. The life of a lamb is in no way comparable to the life of an image bearer. And you're right. Commentators point out a part of what was happening, and Paul explains this in Romans 3, of how God formerly passed over sins committed. Why? And instituted the Passover meal so that God's people would, in eager expectation, look in hope for the Lamb of God, the final sacrifice to which all sacrifices pointed would come in the fullness of time. And when He shed His blood once for all for the sins of His people, There would be no need anymore for the Passover meal. And the gospel writers want to make it clear that we don't miss this, that Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, when he would explain to his disciples that the purpose for him coming to earth was to be crucified and then rise again, he would often reference, but my hour has not yet come. But when his hour finally came, it was during a Passover feast. And so all the gospel writers point out that it was during the Passover that Jesus was sacrificed, exactly when the Passover lambs were sacrificed. And so in Luke 22, it says, then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus' disciples went and found this setup exactly as he said, so they could prepare the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and his apostles were with him. He said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, he gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. And he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this. In remembrance of me. Likewise, with the cup after they had eaten, he said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, in the midst of their shock and awe at what he was doing with completely transforming the Passover, the most obvious question they would have had sitting there is Well, what about the lamb? The whole focus and central element of the Passover meal is the lamb that is sacrificed and eaten. Why is there no lamb on the table, Lord Jesus? And the clear answer was, Because the lamb was at the table. Jesus was saying, no longer do you need to sacrifice a lamb because I am going to be sacrificed for you. Paul tells the church in Corinth, don't ever forget this, for Christ, who is our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is why if you worship here regularly, you know that it's our practice to take the Lord's Supper, which is now the new covenant meal that has replaced Passover, We take it the first Sunday of every month. The Bible doesn't say you have to do it then. That's just been our historic practice. And today is not the first Sunday of the month. But we felt that we had to do communion today because of this passage so that we could have hopefully a little bit better understanding and appreciation for what we do on a regular basis. But here's what I want you to consider. To participate in the original Passover, God's people couldn't have simply been passive. There was an act of obedience of faith that required them to go get a lamb and to go get a lamb without spot or blemish and keep it in their home for two weeks. And then they had to sacrifice that lamb. They had to experience the bloodiness of it. And they had to actually wipe the blood over their doorpost. And then they had to stay in their home and eat a meal exactly as God said. And then when it was time to leave, they had to leave and go to a new land. My point is, I get concerned sometimes that because we live in America and live in the South, that it doesn't feel culturally acceptable to come to worship and stay seated when we take communion. Or we just get up and go through the motions because that's what we've always done. And we don't actually consider, am I, by getting up and coming down and receiving these elements actually identifying myself with Jesus, taking shelter under the blood of the lamb? If so, is that reflected in the way I live? And so I say that to simply say, please, 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 please hear this. If you are here today and you don't believe Jesus is the lamb of God who took away your sins, we are glad you're here. Please keep coming, but do not come up and receive these elements There's no benefit to faking it. Paul says, when you eat the body and blood of Jesus in an unworthy manner, you eat and drink judgment on yourself, and that's why some of you have even died. And so uh, please, um, keep coming, but don't take this until you're ready fully to surrender your life to Christ. Now, having said that, If you came in here today and this is the first time you've ever heard the good news of the gospel and the spirit is stirring your heart and you're saying, yes, I believe that Jesus died for me. The only thing I have to contribute is my sin, which made his death necessary. Then you can come by faith and receive. This table is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not the table of Hope Community Church or the PCA. It's the table of our Lord. And so you are welcome to come. It's our practice to come and receive the elements from the elders. Go back and hold them in your seat, and then we will partake together. You'll notice today that um, Ben Hester, our worship director, specifically chose to use unleavened bread because of the Passover story. And all of the juice is grape juice. We had a kind of breakdown with the um, communion elements as well, which which I think because of the craziness with everything going on with the technology and Bernie had to like splice wires together with a kitchen knife, and then we couldn't get the wine poured, then that means the Holy Spirit's really stirring something in this room today, and Satan hates it. So pay attention. I think something's happening. Don't be surprised if you actually go from death to life today. And so just heads up on that. If you need gluten-free, there's prepackaged elements. I'm going to pray the elders will come forward, and then you can come as you feel led. Lord Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit will set apart these elements from their normal use to their holy use and that you will draw us close to yourself. Oh, help us as we come and eat and drink to behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Dear dying Lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.